You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. On December 7, 2022, the Gospel Coalition released an article by Dr. Michael McClymond, which issues 12 questions which should give pause to anyone considering embracing a theology of Christian universalism. When I read the article, I immediately thought of Andrew Hironich as the person I should contact to respond. Andrew grew up in the world of Reformed theology. He is a graduate of Liberty University, who is now working on his Master's of Theology at Princeton University. He has a forthcoming book on Christian universalism entitled Once Loved, Always Loved, scheduled to be released in 2023 by Whitfenstock. He can be found in several online debates, conversations, and podcasts regarding Christian universalism. I consider him to be the most promising young scholar I know of on a Christian vision of universal reconciliation. Welcome back, Andrew Hironich, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you for having me, David. All right, Andrew, before we get to Dr. McClyman's 12 questions, let's talk a bit about the background of the Gospel Coalition Reform Theology, and Michael McClyman. Sure, yeah. So the Gospel Coalition is basically a bunch of evangelicals who hold to a Calvinistic understanding of the doctrines of grace, and they're committed to responding to cultural challenges according to this biblical worldview, or at least what they deem a biblical worldview. Now, as far as Reformed theology, I think Reformed theology can be understood in many different ways. I think the irony is that those who are part of the Gospel Coalition and consider themselves Calvinists wouldn't be allowed into Calvin's Geneva <laughs> because they didn't uphold the Calvinism that he deemed to be Calvinistic, such as um, views concerning the Eucharist and uh, baptism, uh, such as infant baptism. And so I find that very interesting and it's helpful when I'm dealing with people from Reformed tradition to distinguish between what a Reformed theologian is and what a true Calvinist is. So when I'm talking to scholars, I would consider a true Calvinist as someone who holds not only to the doctrines of grace, but someone who holds as well to versions of paedo-baptism and Calvin's view of the Eucharist. Um, the problem with doing that is many people today, when you're looking online in YouTube or podcasts, is that's not how they view Calvinists. They view it the direct opposite, is that a Calvinist is just one who holds to the doctrines of grace. So for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to assume the more popular definition of what a Calvinist is. And so a Reformed theologian is a subset of Calvinism, um, and so they hold to Calvin's view of the doctrines of grace. Now, uh, there are some prominent individuals who are part of the Gospel Coalition, such as Tim Keller and D.A. Carson, and other people who I do consider to be uh, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. So I do appreciate a lot of the work that the Gospel Coalition has done. I think they have offered us a valuable service. Uh, now, so far as uh, Dr. McClyman is concerned, uh, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, he wrote a massive two-volume work on the devil's redemption that um, it is just inappropriate if someone wants to address the topic of Christian universalism and not address this quite literally elephant in the room with his hundreds and hundreds of pages. Now, Dr. McClymouth also received the 2018 Book Award from the Gospel Coalition. I do not expect to receive myself the 2023 Gospel Coalition Award. <laughs> <laughs> so, but who knows? Dr. Uh, Michael McClymouth also should be commended for his work in uh, community uh, in community service aspect. Uh, he has been on the board of Stepping into the Light, which is a drug and alcohol addiction recovery ministry, 
in the Saint, uh, city of St. Louis, and he's also been on the board of Habitat for Humanity, which my family has also uh, partaken of. So I do admire him for the work that he's done in that respect. Um, I also found out that he's a guitarist, a singer, and a songwriter. So props to Dr. McClellan <laughs> in that regards. He's also the single father of a daughter, um, Sarah, who also I found out recently graduated from the college in Atlanta. Um, so I can imagine the difficulties that come raising a child in a single parent home. Um, so I can just my prayers go out to Dr. McClyman and his family. And uh, while I may disagree with Dr. McClyman, I believe he is a world class researcher and he has my respect as a fellow human being created in the image of God and brother in Christ. Now, uh, Michael has published a book on the theology of Jonathan Edwards, and as a member of the Gospel Coalition, is an avowed Calvinist, a trait one can glean from several of his theological objections in his book, particularly those concerning the nature of grace. Michael seems to believe that grace is more gracious the less it is given, and that grace is unowed while justice is always owed the creature. So those are just some preliminary points. Let me just break in a little bit and say that I used to think that Calvinism was just something that was kind of an abhorrent theological system that was just so unfair. But when I started looking more into Calvinism, I began to realize that there were some points that I thought that Calvinism made really well. I thought Calvinism made a stronger point about the sovereignty of God than, than I was having when I really started grappling with that. And so I, I came to be, agree with Calvinism that God is ultimately sovereign with regard to human destiny. That was something that Calvinism challenged me on. Uh, Calvinism also challenged me on my understanding that salvation is by grace alone. Uh, my theology up until the time I was 50 was basically that, that salvation is almost entirely by grace, but there is that there is that little part that we have to do, and if we don't do that, then there's nothing that can be done for us. And what I, what Calvinism finally forced me to admit was I did not believe that salvation was by grace alone. So uh, the Reformed tradition, in some regards, has has really pushed me to my, you know, to my current position. So, and I do think that while there was a lot in the devil's redemption that wasn't focused in the way that I would focus and some of the arguments made about Gnosticism and Jacob Burma and things that are going on in that book. It was interesting, some of the uh, some of the insights that he had, some of the warnings that he took for Christian universalism, I thought were accurate kinds of warnings. So I don't want to feel uncharitable towards anybody that's trying to do theology. One thing I've learned is that anybody that does theology exposes themselves to vulnerability because we all end up, no matter what position that we take, with some scriptures that just don't work very well or don't seem to work very well for our our position. But in the in the article, I will say that Dr. McClyman acts as if Christian universalists have lots of scriptural problems to overcome as well as holding to a questionable minority view, which was declared heretical in 553 at the Fifth General Council. But you grew up around Reformed theology and left it behind precisely because Reformed theology has problems of its own, which Dr. McClyman uh, does not recognize in this article. So could we talk about this for a little bit? Sure, yeah. I want to point out uh, right at the beginning for those who will read this article is that what Dr. McClyman is attempting to use is what's called the, the Gish Gallop, which I had talked about in a previous podcast, where it's, it's named after a certain creationist who, in debating evolutionists, would simply trot out a number of objections, just repeatedly in spitfire mode, 
knowing that it takes more time to adequately respond to an objection than to raise an objection. And this is exactly what Dr. McClymond is doing here. Now, we have to all remember that we have certain presuppositions that we bring to the conversation, regardless of whether or not we present it. Um, and Dr. McClymond, it people might not know reading this, argue, uh, this article that he is, in fact, a Calvinist, but that's, in fact, what he is as a member of the Gospel Coalition. And it is important that Dr. McClymond at least recognize that he does have these presuppositions. It reminds me of a fish uh, who one day when he was swimming past an older fish, the older fish asked him, um, how does the water feel today? And the fish asked, water, what's water? <laughs> right? yeah. So some, so sometimes sometimes some of us, we're not aware uh, or always consciously aware of those presuppositions, but I always find it more helpful when we're dialoguing to acknowledge those presuppositions in order to have an honest conversation. So let's do that at the front here in the terms of Reformed theology. Now, it's true. Um, I was once on the dark side, <laughs> as you might say. <laughs> and um, I think that um, to this day, I think that many Calvinists, they do get a bad rap. And uh, I by no means want to be bitter against Reformed theology because I think that there are many tremendous brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who are in the Reformed tradition. And yet I, there are some difficulties that I found that ultimately led me out of that tradition. So one of those difficulties uh, first arise from pastoral concerns. So for example, uh, just on a pastoral note, I can't tell someone that Christ died as their substitute. If they were to ask me, did, did Jesus die in my place? I can't say yes, because I don't know. I mean, perhaps God has not elected that person. Now, this would apply to those who hold to a view known as limited atonement, although they have tried to reframe it as particular redemption or definite atonement. In any case, pastorally, it makes things rather complicated and seems to actually go against examples we see set forth in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul reminds the church in Corinth of things he had previously taught them, things such as that Christ died for us, right? who, who are the people in Corinth who we can assume at least all of them were not believers in Christ uh, when Paul first attended there. And yet Paul says that he told them when he first attended that Christ died for us, for everyone. So I do have concerns pastorally in that regards especially when people are going through a season of doubt, uh, such as concerning their election. How can they know if they've been elected? Well, the problem is that John Calvin uh, has said previously in the institutes and other writings of his is that God has determined for some people to falsely believe that they're elect. So they're convinced that they're elect, but they're not. So then the question would arise, well, how do I know if I'm being deceived or not? Now, the example I always give is, of imagine, um, David, this is an awful example, but uh, imagine that you're married uh, to this wonderful woman that you dearly love, and then your best friend tells you, hey, this woman has married other individuals in the past before and led them on, but she only wanted their money and she cheated on them in the process. Now, the question I would immediately ask is, oh my goodness, I wonder if she's doing that to me, right? Now, in Calvinism, if you know that God is doing this, like Calvin says, to thousands, if not millions of people, and the question you have to ask yourself is, how do I know if God's not doing this to me? How do I know if he's not deceiving me into falsely believing that I have faith? So, so that is, and what can you tell to an individual like that? It's, it's rather difficult. Um, so those would be pastoral concerns that I have. Then I have more so theological concerns. Um, I love this statement that John Piper made in one of his books where he said that God is most satisfied in us when we are most satisfied in him. Uh, and thus, our satisfaction is not at odds with God's glorification. Now, I've wondered, well, if this is so, if God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, then why must God damn anyone? I mean, if God desires to be most glorified in all, 
And if he is most glorified in all, if all are most satisfied in him, then surely he would save all. Now, the uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, also teaches that in the case of the elect, God took, quote, away their heart of stone and gave unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. It's so as they become, uh, so as they come most freely being made willing by grace. Calvin himself likewise said, I at least maintain this teaching of Augustine's where God makes sheep out of wolves. He reforms them by a more powerful grace to subdue their hardness. Accordingly, God does not convert the obstinate because he does not manifest that more powerful grace, which is not lacking if he should please to offer it. Notice that God can save anyone he wants most freely by means of his irresistible grace. And yet, according to most Calvinists, there are some people whom he will not save. Ultimately, in order to elevate God to a position of unrivaled sovereignty, Calvinists often blur the line between the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Allah of the Quran. If love is patient, kind, and does not fail, then we must ask, does God love the reprobate? I mean, how is it? How is God patient in decreeing that Esau, for example, shall be damned from before the foundation of the world? I fail to see how God is being patient or kind with Esau. Uh, I'm reminded of the quote by J.I. Packer, who once said that, quote, God does the best he can for his loved ones, and the best he can do is omnipotence. And so I picked that theme up in my book, and I agree with J.I. Packer 100% that God does the best he can for his loved ones, and the best he can do is omnipotence. The difference between me and Packer would be that I think the range of God's loved ones is much more broad, and that it encompasses eventually mm-hmm. all persons. One of the things that uh, that I found out in looking at the Gospel Coalition is they also are advocates of eternal conscious torment. And so that even kind of puts another kind of feeling to this in that God doesn't even give, like you say, thousands, millions, potentially billions of people, even a chance at salvation and then keeps them in an eternal state of conscious torment because they failed to do what they could not do. That puts, uh, to me, that, that calls into question the idea of God being love, which we find in 1 John 4, 8, and also the declaration in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So I would say that, you know, that certainly causes problems. And you brought up that Calvinism says that God does not desire to save all people. Well, then we could bring up some scriptures, that, like, for instance, in 1 Timothy is not God our Savior who desires everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3, 9 is not God the one who is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone come to repentance. So those are just examples of problem scriptures that they are going to have and that they're going to have to deal with. And also, I think mm-hmm. that since they are saying that, that there will be this division and not all will be saved, well, then they have to deal with, uh, you know, the scriptures that seem to suggest that there will be this coming time when God will be all in all. First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight, or if Ephesians one nine through ten, that talks about Christ and a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then in Romans fourteen eleven, for as it is written, as I live, says Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise. Or Colossians, where in the fullness of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
by making peace through the blood of his cross. I mean, there's verse after verse that we could bring up that would that would cause problems for the Calvinist position. But in the article, it's just, oh boy, look at Christian universalism and all the problems that it has. It doesn't even, it's not self-reflective. It doesn't recognize that it has vulnerabilities or weaknesses. And then we'll talk about this a little bit more, but it's brought up that Origen was condemned at an ecumenical council in, in 553. Well, that's true, but it's, it's, it's a really complicated issue. But I kind of thought that Calvinists were a part of the Reformation, which was sola scriptura. So it's strange to me that they would be kind of appealing to a church council when I, I bet if you looked at all the things that that church council talked about, they might not want to affirm all of those things. So uh, does that raise any things for you? No, it, it, for sure. I mean, uh, for example, what immediately comes to mind is the issue of icons is Reformed tradition. If you go to many Reformed tradi- uh, churches today, you'll notice that they don't have icons in those churches, even though the Ecumenical Council at Nicaea too <laughs> ruled in favor of the veneration of icons. Um, so I find this rich that Michael is here appealing to the ecumenical councils when the ecumenical councils affirm the virginity of Mary, the veneration of icons, and other things the Reformed tradition would adamantly oppose for sure. Well, not, not the, the virginity of, of Mary, the, uh, that Mary is the mother of, Mary is the mother of God. At the, oh, the, at the, yeah, the, the perpetual virginity yeah, of the Mary. Perpetual, yeah. yeah, the perpetual virginity of Mary. And, you know, like you were saying, if... McClyman was to go back to Geneva and say what his beliefs were, he would run into some problems. Well, mm-hmm. if he went back to 553 to this council and stood and declared what his views were back then, they would not have been very happy <laughs> with him. It's just interesting how sometimes, you know, things like in this, they just get they just get thrown out like, oh, these, these Christian universities, they've got scripture problems and they've got history problems, as if they don't have scripture problems and history problems themselves. For sure. In, in fact, um, I wanted to coin a new term in my book, but I decided that it might be too volatile, so I removed it, which is uh, sola Calvin. Uh, because I've noticed this trend amongst uh, many Reformed people today is that while they use terminology such as sola scriptura, what they really mean is we need to go back to Calvin, right, and, and no further. So, for example, during the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin wanted to reform the church at least up until the time of Augustine, but no further, right? They were content to go that far. And many Calvinists might talk to them today, it seems like they're content to go back to John Calvin, but no further. And so uh, instead of saying, what would Jesus do? It almost comes across as, what would Calvin do? <laughs> what I find rich about this is the Reformed tradition is known for its famous mantra that uh, the church is uh, reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. And even the Gospel Coalition, I looked at his confessional statement and it says this, quote, these writings alone, being the scripture, constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. So in other words, the Gospel Coalition teaches that the Bible is the final court of appeals as a sole infallible authority on faith and morals. If this is so, then councils only serve as secondary sources of authority, being themselves not infallible in their interpretation and open to correction. And so I would hold out to people like the climate and the Gospel Coalition um, this principle of prima scriptura, that um, scripture is primary, that is the final court of appeals, and saying that, brothers and sisters, we are making our appeal to you on the basis of scripture. 
and we would like to be treated fairly and we would like uh, you to point out where we err in concern with the scriptures themselves. All right, well, let's go ahead now that we've had got that kind of preliminary discussion, and let's start with these various questions that uh, Michael McClyman and the Gospel Coalition would like us as Christian Universalists to respond to. So I'll just start with question number one. How should we interpret Jesus' words regarding hell or Gehenna, the outer darkness, the fire that is not quenched, the worm, that does not die, and the like. Christian belief in the reality of hell and the possibility of separation from God rests on Jesus' own words in the Gospels. Hell, or Gehenna, and other related terms point toward a state of punishment and suffering after death. Yet if everyone with that exception is headed toward the same final destination with God, as universalists claim, then why do we find Jesus saying the sheep will be separated from the goats? that the wheat will be separated from the weeds, that the wheat will be separated from the chaff, that the good fish will be separated from the bad fish, that the wise versions will enter the wedding feast, but the foolish versions will be stuck outside. Separation is occurring in all these passages. But if universalism is true, there can be no truly lasting separation. And in that case, isn't Jesus' teaching highly misleading? Are we to imagine that our Savior frightened his hearers by describing a fixed separation of sinners that will never occur, or a future state of punishment that will not exist? <laughs> uh, yeah, so first, I want you to notice what Michael says in the conclusion of his this first question. He says, if we're looking back at it again, if universal is true, then there can be no lasting separation. Are we to imagine that our Savior frightened his hearers by describing a fixed separation of sinners? So, if you notice what's going on here, Michael is committing the fallacy that's known as begging the question. See, universalists do not deny the notion of separation. Indeed, separation acts as a necessary precondition for reconciliation. Otherwise, there would be nothing to reconcile. As Paul said in Romans 11:32, For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Notice the clause, so that, in verse 32. The reason for God's consigning of all men to disobedience was so that he might have mercy on all. In fact, um, I, I, when I first read this, David, I found it interesting because there's a class here at the Princeton Seminary on God and separation. And one of the students pointed out to me just last week that separation in the Bible serves as a pathway to restoration. I think of Jacob and Esau, of Israel and Yahweh, of Simon Peter and Christ, numerous examples in the scripture where this is the case. Furthermore, nothing in the passages that Michael cites suggests that separation is fixed, as he claims it is. This is precisely what is in contention. What Michael is doing is claiming that evidence for separation should serve as evidence for a fixed separation. But this is simply fatuous, as we've already noted that reconciliation requires a separation. Therefore, we could turn Michael's statement on its head and claim that evidence for separation Search serve as evidence for final reconciliation. Well, and, um, you know, this is a misunderstanding that I run into, into because people will say, oh, so you don't believe in hell. And I'll say, well, <laughs> I don't believe in hell as a place of eternal separation from God. But if you look in the Bible, there are several places where God's judgments serve as purgation mm -hmm. or cleansing or purification, which then lead to a which lead to a restoration. So there are, like you're saying, there's all kinds of examples of separation. And uh, if you look back at some of the early believers in final restoration in the early centuries of the church, they thought of 
time moving forward in a series of aeons or ages. And then once the ages came to their completion, then finally God would be all in all. So they imagined that God would not rush this process and that there could be potentially ages and ages and ages and ages of separation mm-hmm. before the the final before God was finally all in all. So the separation would last really almost to the end of the ages. But at the at the end of the ages, the separations then would finally would finally come together and God would finally be all in all. I think you hit the nail right in the head where when you're talking to a traditionalist and they'll say, for example, well do you even believe in hell? That kind of reminds me of a conversation that one might expect between a geocentricist and a heliocentricist, one who believes that the earth is at the center of the universe one who believes that the sun uh, is at the center of our solar system. And, and imagine if um, the heliocentricist was to tell the geocentricist, well, I, I believe that the sun is at the center. Um, how silly would it be if the geocentricist said, well, do you even believe in the earth? Well, <laughs> of course he believes in the earth. The question is, uh, where does the earth fit into the grand scheme of things? And that's the same thing with the notion of hell. And that's, um, that's more to the point of what I was saying, that evidence for separation is not necessarily evidence for a fixed separation because separation is necessary on a reconciliationist model too. And so simply citing verses that talk about separation is not sufficient in and of itself to give final proof for a case of a fixed or final separation. Yeah, like that passage from uh, Lamentations uh, 3.31, well, God does not cast off anyone forever. doesn't say that God does not cast off. doesn't say that God doesn't separate says that God doesn't cast off forever. And so, all right, let's move on to question number two that Dr. McClyman uh, wants us to consider. If hell is a temporary state, but heaven is a forever state, then why are both denoted by the same word as eternal? In the ancient church, Severus of Antioch and Augustine made a similar observation. In Matthew 25, 41 and 25, 46, the same Greek word, Aeonios is used to describe both the duration of heaven and the duration of punishment after death. Universalists often argue that Aeonios, as applied to hell or punishment, doesn't mean eternal in the strict sense, but merely age long. In other words, hell exists, but it's temporary. In that case, though, we'd need to conclude heaven too is temporary, that heaven comes to an end. Otherwise, how can the same Greek word have two different meanings in the very same verse, age-long when applied to punishment or hell, but forever when applied to heaven? This makes little sense. Yeah, so uh, Michael acknowledges at the beginning of this objection that he is relying upon an argument that finds itself in history from the pen of Augustine himself, uh, which I was surprised that Michael actually included this, because as someone who's done a great deal of research on universalism, he should be well aware of the answers that universalists have offered on this point. Um, So for one thing, Michael should know that the purpose of adjectives is to describe the nouns they refer to. Thus, the same word applied to a different noun can carry with it different connotations. So for example, a, a tall building and a tall man are not one and the same. The word tall derives its meaning from what it refers to. As George Soros puts it, quote, what tall is to size, the Hebrew and Greek words generally translated as forever, are to duration, end quote. Uh, an example of this is Habakkuk 3.6, where the author writes, quote, Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Okay, so how can the hills be everlasting if they will sink low? Are God's ways tied up with the duration of the hills' persistence, so that when the hills vanish, God's ways will change? <laughs> what a silly notion. 
Thus, it is evidently false to claim that the punishment and the life must be of the same duration, since the same adjective is used to describe them. Elsewhere, Paul proclaims a, quote, mystery that was kept secret for eternal ages, or what many translations say is long ages in Romans 16.25. Well, if an age-abiding mystery can come to a close, why can't an age-abiding punishment? On the uh, particular interpretation of Matthew 25, though, and its usage of the word Ionion, I find myself in the same camp as Tom Wright, David Bentley Hart, and others in that I believe Ionian refers to when the punishment will be, not how long it will be. So the punishment will be in the age to come, the same as the life, which is resurrection life. The resurrection we know shall occur in the age to come. Thus, resurrection life is that of the age to come. Simply because both occur in the age to come does not mean that both will be of the same duration. For example, example, tomorrow I am taking a final exam. Uh, Fingers crossed for me, folks, and prayers appreciated. (laughs) And tomorrow I will have dinner. Simply because both activities occur tomorrow does not mean that they will be of the same duration, right? So, moreover, Paul attests elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 in stronger terms that we will be raised imperishable with incorruptible bodies while death itself will die. So if you want sufficient warrant for the life being eternal, we can find that in passages like 1 Corinthians 15. But Michael has yet to produce evidence for us understanding the punishment itself will be eternal. And um, so, yeah, so there are just some quick thoughts that I had. On that well, I, also, I also noticed in doing my work on this that sometimes Aonios, like when Jesus talks about the eternal life is that you would know the Father. Mm-hmm. Well, in some ways, Aonios apply, can apply to things which are fitting of God. So the Aeonian life of God is the life that is fitting of God. Mm-hmm. The Aeonian punishment of God is the punishment that's fitting of God. It would just be like saying, if you were like a child, well, this is my dad's life and this is my dad's punishment. Well, if dad is good, then we know what dad's punishments are like and that they're intended for correction and, and restoration. And that ultimately the purpose of the of the father is for the son to grow up and to be able to experience the same kind of life that the father has. So mm-hmm. the father is imagining this one day, this adult relationship where father and son will be able to have this mature awareness and live in the same kind of realm and celebrate and see the same types of things. So I'm not, as, I found myself when I looked at how versatile the word Ionios was. And also I realized that the like origin and some of the early Greek fathers could talk about, yes, God is in the business of Aeonian punishment, but they were clearly thought that Aeonian punishment just lasted as long as the aeons were going on, that finally the aeons would be over and that all God would be all in all at that point. So I think we have a little bit of a problem in trying to understand how in the ancient world they thought of like origin could think of time as a series of aeons that would come to an end and then all would not, nobody would be in an aeon anymore. All would be in God. And we tend to think of, of eternity as this time, this unending timeline that it not only are we on, but somehow God is on it with us. And so that makes all this very confusing. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, another interesting thing is that oftentimes in these conversations, so much emphasis is put on the word, that we translate as eternal, rather than the word that we translate as punishment. Uh, what's interesting is that many scholars think that this word that uh, is used for punishment implies remedial connotations, so that it should be understood as chastisement. 
Well, when you chastise someone, if it takes forever to chastise them, I mean, that's no longer chastisement, right? Uh, I mean, a lesson that takes forever to teach is a lesson that's never actually learned. And so if the intention of this passage is for Jesus to point out that, as he does, these goats are immature. I mean, the word that's used for goats implies that these goats are young, that these goats are immature. Well, mm-hmm. um, so uh, if it fits uh, better within this context, to use an agricultural term that implies some sort of chastisement. And so that can help through this whole conversation, just understand the connotation that should be used for punishment. Uh, if the connotation is remedial, it doesn't make any sense to say that, therefore, this remedial punishment will take all eternity to apply. Um, so I think that Michael would do well to understand our concerns in that regard as well. Okay, let's move on to question number three he has for us. What about the two ways theme in the Old and New Testaments? The New Testament's teaching on heaven and hell doesn't materialize out of nowhere. The theme of two ways leading to different outcomes is woven throughout the Bible. In just the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis 2, Adam is given a choice between life with God if he doesn't eat from the forbidden tree or death and defiance of God if he does eat. In Psalm 1, there are different outcomes for the righteous and the wicked. And so also in Isaiah 1, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. The universalist idea of only one outcome for everyone, regardless of choices made, doesn't merely contradict one verse here or there. It runs against the whole thrust of the Old and New Testament teachings. So Michael speaks of two ways, but notice that while he never answers the question, two ways to what, he seems to imply that the two ways lead to two different destinations. Uh, In the future, I would ask Michael to clarify his language, lest he be accused of dishonesty. For universalists believe in two ways as well, one through fire and the second death, and the other not. In Mark 9, 49 through 50, Jesus says, quote, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Both Olari Romelli and Robin Parry interpret this passage in Mark 9 to imply that there's two different ways of purgation or of being salted with fire. Uh, one goes through the Gehenna and the other go through repentance that can be done in this life. And Jesus is imploring the people to choose the latter as opposed to the former. Uh, but Michael doesn't address this. So instead, Michael appears again to be engaging in begging the question when it comes to this two ways approach. He seems to be saying that only infernalists can accommodate the Bible's language of two ways. But this remains to be seen. There are two ways that can lead to Israel's possession of the promised land, faithfulness to God and Torah or exile that would later result in restoration. Michael ends this third objection with a provocative statement, quote, the universalist idea of only one outcome for everyone, regardless of choices made, doesn't merely contradict one verse here or there, end quote. I'm sorry, but this is a blatant misrepresentation of what it is universalists believe. And I wish Michael and others would learn to steal man, their fellow believer, rather than scarecrow them. Christ called us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and I have no doubt that Michael would want his fellow universalist to steel man him rather than straw man. So why can't he show the same courtesy? No universalist I know of says that all we saved, quote, regardless of choices made. Again, Michael seems to be hiding a premise that being that posthumous repentance is not a live option. We would do well to rephrase Michael's objection to say, quote, regardless of choices made in this life. That is what Michael really means to say. Thus, this objection really just amounts to an objection not so much against universalism, but against the notion of posthumous repentance, 
which is a belief that is not just held by universalists, but also non-universalists such as James Bilby, Clark Pinnock, James Spiegel, Jerry Walls, etc. All right, let's go on to the fourth question. Why did Jesus need to die such a horrible, agonizing death on the cross for our sins? It's a poignant moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asks his Heavenly Father to remove this cup of suffering from him. What is the outcome? His petition is denied. The sinless Son of God prayed to the Father, yet his request wasn't granted. It's hard to imagine how the necessity of his death on the cross could be demonstrated more emphatically than this. But why? If God simply wanted to demonstrate his love for humanity, there were innumerable ways he might have done so. Yet, as John Stott argued in The Cross of Christ, the love revealed in Jesus' death was a holy love. The cross satisfied justice and demonstrated love. Thus, it can't be viewed as an act of divine love in isolation from divine justice. Universalism struggles to explain the necessity of Jesus' horrifying death. For if a universalist admits that God's righteous opposition to sin required something that awful, the death of God's incarnate Son, then it also makes sense to say that sinners, not justified by Jesus' death, deserve hell or something like it. God's justice requires one or the other, either the hell of Jesus' agony, in which the sinner's guilt is vicariously atoned for, or the hell of individual suffering for the one who rejects Jesus and his atoning work. The logic of atonement and the logic of hell are intertwined. This brings me back a little bit, David, because I remember in undergrad, uh, I had a professor who was similar to Michael, he was a Calvinist, uh, who claimed that the Father refused Christ's request, but that simply reading through the text was not there. Uh, my professor, it eventually became clear why he wanted to say that the Father rejected Christ's request in the garden, and this be was because he wanted to say that God revealed, uh, he rejected Christ's second request made on the cross, that being, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And so he would say that the Father rejected both requests, not just the one that was in the garden. Uh, but if Michael would look at Matthew 26, 39, the text actually says, quote, And going a little further, he, being Christ, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, notice that key phrase, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is ironic is that Michael holds to a penal substitutionary view of the atonement, which often teaches the necessity of the atonement. In other words, theologians such as Aquinas and Augustine have often doubted whether God needed atonement to forgive sins. But adherents of penal substitutionary atonement theory are notorious for saying that without atonement, there can be no at-one-ment with God. God cannot simply forgive. Why is this important? Well, because when Christ asks if there be any other way, on Michael's model, there isn't. <laughs> there is no other way to atonement without atonement. So that this objection would only have a bite if Michael abandoned his belief in the necessity of the atonement, thus placing himself outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Michael's claim that, quote, universalism struggles to explain the necessity of Jesus' horrifying death is, end quote, both stupid and strange. I have often had people ask me, if universalism is true, why did Christ have to die? But I often like to turn the question back on them by answering, it's precisely because Christ died that all will be saved. The incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ are all integral parts of the atonement, without which there would be no reconciliation of all persons. I also find this objection strange in that as a Calvinist, Michael believes that Jesus, as the substitute of the elect, saves them in his atoning work. But if the elect were elect in eternity past, and their election took place prior to the atonement in the order of decrees, as many Calvinists believe, 
How can Michael shirk the charge that he holds to a model of eternal justification where the elect are born justified, but just haven't realized it yet? Michael might argue, as other Calvinists, to hold to eternal justification, that the elect are justified in light of grace provided by the atonement, so that the atonement is necessary for justification. If this is so, then the atonement would be necessary only if the elect was to cover the full range of created persons. At the most, Michael's statement only warrants the conclusion, quote, All things being equal, a retributive atonement demands a retributive hell. An infinite sin demands an infinite punishment. But even if this claim were true, it would not demand that at the end of the day there are persons who are finally separated from God. Why is that? Well, because Michael himself believes that although human sin demands an infinite retributive punishment, God has made provision for the elect. He has provided a way so that they need not suffer this penalty. In the same way, the Universalists can argue that God has made provision, provided a way, so that although all persons deserve to suffer this penalty, as a matter of contingent fact, they do not. Michael seems only to be targeting a version of necessary Universalism, like Bardian Universalism, and even then, much could be said, but I'll leave it at that. Well, it, it seems pretty clear to me that there's lots of passages in the New Testament which are very striking, that Christ died and we died, that somehow Christ incorporates humanity in his, in his experience. And so it's striking to me when somebody says, well, if you're a Christian universalist, then I guess Christ died for nothing. It, <laughs> it just astounds me. It's like, no, 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 <laughs> no, as a matter of fact. Christ died, and he's, you know, he said if he if he is lifted up, referring to his crucifixion, I would draw all people to myself. And so he seemed to think that his crucifixion was connected with all people coming to him. To me, the effect, the effectiveness of the cross just gets magnified the more people that are saved. So you know, let's say one, uh, only one person of all of humanity was saved by the cross versus all of humanity being saved by what Jesus did on the cross, then the the glory and the effectiveness of the cross just continues and continues to increase and to multiply until finally it is victorious and triumphant over all sin and death and possible separation. What this reminds me of, David, is that let's say there's a case where a fatal disease breaks out uh, among the American population. Let's just call it COVID-19. <laughs> Actually, that might not be helpful. Well, let's call it something else. And then let's say that we developed, um, you and I, we developed a cure that is 100% effective. And we administer it to everybody and everybody's healed. And yet one person says, but why did we bother producing that cure if everybody was going to eventually get healed? I mean, it, it makes no sense to me whatsoever, the objection. The idea that, well, if the cure is 100% effective, then why bother producing the cure just seems to me rather silly. All right, question number five. How should we interpret the end times teaching of Revelation? Universalists generally understand God as a loving being who doesn't exercise judgment towards sin or sinners. Yet Revelation offers a picture of God's righteous judgment against a sinful world in overt rebellion against himself as the bowls of his wrath are poured out. The beast, the false prophet, and the devil are later seized by the Lord and thrown into the lake of fire. An outcome set over and against the New Jerusalem where the Lord dwells with Christ and the saints. In his book, The Evangelical Universalist, Robin Perry tries to interpret Revelation in a universalist fashion and does so by equating God with the lake of fire. Sinners fall into the lake of fire, get purified by God's fiery presence, and then enter the New Jerusalem. 
since Revelation identifies the lake of fire with the second death, if the lake of fire is God, then God is the second death. Such exegesis twists the meaning of Scripture and distorts the character of God. Yeah, so uh, Michael makes the astounding claim that, quote, universalists generally understand God as a loving being who doesn't exercise judgment towards sin or sinners, end quote. At this point, I'm not sure whether Michael intends to engage universalists seriously. Can Michael show me in the work of Thomas Talbot, Eric Raytan, David Bentley Hart, and myself any statement to the point that God is a benign grandfather who doesn't exercise judgment and punish sinners? In fact, many universalists drive home the point that punishment often suits a good purpose and is in fact one of the necessary means by which God restores people to himself. One of the downsides to Michael's article is that he doesn't provide a single footnote or quotation of his sources for someone to verify. Michael has been called out on this before by Thomas Talbot when Michael made an assertion regarding Talbot's belief, an assertion absent from all of Talbot's works. In the same way, Michael claims that Robin Parry equates God with the Lake of Fire. While this is more of an Eastern Orthodox reading than anything, I struggled to find this in Robin Parry's book this afternoon. On the other hand, I did find Parry saying that, quote, the lake of fire is the way in which those who join themselves with Babylon share in the same fate as her, end quote. Indeed, Parry claims that, quote, the universalist would see the lake of fire as deserved and terrible, but also as educative, being aimed at producing a realization of one's sins and thus repentance, end quote. In the future, I think it would be more helpful if Michael were to cite his interlocutor accurately should he desire to provide a meaningful criticism. While Michael claims that the concocted exegesis he forces on Dr. Parry, quote, twists the meaning of scripture and distorts the character of God, I think it is Dr. McClyman who twists the meaning of Dr. Parry and distorts his character by failing to accurately represent him. What, what this made me think about is George MacDonald and his insistence that God is a consuming fire. Well, yes, God is a consuming fire. That's biblical. And that this fire would finally and ultimately destroy anything that is not worthy of love or light just is a basic idea of Christian universalists. And the reading of Revelation does end with the spirit and the bride issuing this invitation. And if you pay attention to the text, it's confusing because it it would seem that everybody that was not written in the book of life was already in the lake of fire. And so who who is this invitation being issued to? And it says, well, there's, and it describes there are these people right, right outside the gates and that they have this invitation. So the, the book of Revelation is a little more difficult maybe to interpret all the way around. It contains lots of different kinds of visions, but I think that I can find a lot of hopeful things in the book of Revelation as well as for thinking about a final restoration of all things. Yeah, I'm always skeptical of those who treat Revelation as the final court of appeals for their view, right? Because apocalyptic uh, literature is just is notorious for being very hard to interpret. Yeah. That being said, I do remember, David, you might appreciate this. As a young child, we were reading through Revelation. And when we came to the end, I read that part about the kings of the earth coming in. And uh, I knew exactly what it was saying. <laughs> and I remember asking my Sunday school teachers, hold up now. The only people outside of the city are those in the lake. Uh, what are they doing coming in? I mean, do, do people get a second chance? Is how I asked. And my teacher didn't know how, how to respond. Uh, so I did, I, when I came to universalism years later, I thought back on that child memory, how even then 
Uh, there were times in my uh, younger childhood when I would read through the Bible where there are certain things that just didn't seem to square in traditionalism. And those can be found in the book of Revelation itself. And in the early church fathers, they got their eschatology like from Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and meditated on, on the idea there that God would finally be uh, all in all. So I, I do find that it is interesting that when infernalists sort of hold up the book of Revelation as the final arbiter, what's the last word on this? And it gives us a clear picture. Well, it turns out when you look at it, the picture isn't that clear. And why do we want to use one of the most debated books, sort of the final arbiter, and one of the most complex and important questions that we've got? All right, question number six. Doesn't the New Testament show that salvation is connected to faith? No less than seven times in the Gospels, Jesus says, your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. A concordance will show the words faith and believe with their cognates appear over 500 times in the New Testament. The texts are too, too numerous to cite. Hebrews 11 is a whole chapter linking salvation to faith, but how is this tight connection between salvation and faith consistent with universalism? The universalist is bound to say either that one, people in the present life who don't seem to be believers really are believers in some hidden or cryptic fashion, two, people who depart this life in unbelief get a further opportunity to become believers after death, or three, salvation isn't tied to faith despite the biblical witness to the contrary. None of these three options is congruent with Scripture. Some universalists believe God saves people who don't believe and don't want to be saved. This sounds a lot like coerced salvation. So in my own opinion, I thought that this was perhaps the weakest of uh, Dr. McClyman's objections, as can be seen from his watered-down conclusion that, quote, some universalists believe God saves people who don't believe and don't want to be saved. Yeah, sure. And some Calvinists are super lapsarian, believing that the, the, the decree of reprobation precedes God's decree of creation, so that God created in order to damn. Well, since Dr. McClyman isn't a super lapsarian, this won't be a helpful objection to his form of Calvinism. Likewise, McClyman's objection isn't really helpful to the majority of universalists who believe that everyone will eventually come to a point of saving faith most freely. We're kind of getting into the, the realm of free will here, and Christian universalists reject the idea of, of some kind of libertarian free will where people are completely blank slates that they can fill in however they want to. We would say that the human being is created in the image of God and has a certain orientation, and that the human being becomes increasingly free as it conforms itself to its created nature. And so coming to fullness of awareness of who God is and who you are, and then coming home to your heavenly father, like the, in the parable of the prodigal son, that's not denying anybody's freedom. That is, in fact, setting them free because sin is what makes you unfree. So if you take away the sin, the misunderstanding, the evil, if you take all that stuff away and now everything is seen clearly, you haven't deprived somebody of their freedom. You've actually set them free. Yeah, I like to think about it this way is that man is free, but God is freer, right? God's choices are qualitatively different than our choices. And God's choice, therefore, for us is qualitatively different than our choice initially against him. So that every choice that we make is, in effect, actually uh, stemming from a wanting of God in that uh, it's an infinite regression. We do what we do for this eventually transcendent infinite horizon, which we identify with God himself. And um, this is why Jesus says in the Gospel of John that uh, people who sin are a slave to sin. It's the truth that shall set a man free, right? And uh, Paul goes elsewhere to say in his own epistles that he was forgiven because of his former ignorance. 
Jesus himself says on the cross in the Gospel of Luke, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? Uh, I don't consider an individual who refuses to drink from a stream of running water in the desert after he's famished and at the point of dying from thirst free, should he choose, uh, refuse to do so. I consider him mad <laughs> and mm-hmm. delusional. I don't consider that to be an act of freedom. So this idea that simply because my knowledge hinders my ability to choose makes me less free, well, then that would be to say that the people who occupy our asylums are more free than us, right? So so freedom is not simply the ability to choose. Freedom is when you have chosen well, as the Bible seems to teach. All right. Uh, question number seven. What's the historic teaching on final salvation in the major branches of Christendom? If universalist teaching is correct, then it's remarkable it never found its way into any of the official documents, confessions, or creeds of the major Christian communities, Catholic, or Orthodox, or Protestant, with the exception of the Universalist Church in the States beginning in the 1800s and continuing into the early 1900s, one simply doesn't find universalism officially taught by any Christian community. Many Unitarian Universalists today don't believe in life after death at all. Read through Philip Schaff's or Jerusalem Pelican's multi-volume works on the creeds and confessions. You won't find universal salvation as a historic Christian teaching. In Orthodoxy and Eastern Christianity, generally, certain individuals were self-conscious universalists, e.g. Gregory of Nyssa, Isaac of Nineveh, but they represented a minority group, and their universalist views were merely a tolerated private opinion. Universalism was never admitted as official public teaching, nor allowed to be preached from the pulpits of Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant congregations. Moreover, the best-known early teacher of universalism origin was condemned by name at the Second Council of Constantinople in 8553. Throughout history, this condemnation was taken as a rejection of Origen's teaching on universal salvation. In the ancient church, the number of non-universalist writers far outnumber the universalists by a factor of about 10 to 12 to 1. See my tabulation in The Devil's Redemption, page 1097 to 99. This was true not only of Latin language authors, but of those who wrote in Greek, Coptic, and Syriac. If the universalists are correct, then many of the greatest Christian teachers, including Augustine, Chrysostom, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Bellarmine, Pascal, Owen, Edwards, Newman, and so on, we're all mistaken on an essential theological question. Do we really think 21st century Christianity is so much more enlightened than preceding centuries that we alone have discovered the truth of universal salvation? Is it not more plausible to imagine we inhabit an age of spiritual and moral laxity and that universalism is growing because of a widespread desire to find a more permissive set of beliefs? <laughs> so at best, this is both an argument from silence and a genetic fallacy whereby one attempts to discredit a belief based on how it arises. Regardless of how the belief arises, it may still in fact be true. If I look at a broken clock that says 510, and I think the time is 510, and you say that the clock is broken, does that mean the time cannot be 510? (laughs) No, it does not. Likewise, Michael also seems to be confusing theologumina with dogma. Simply because universalism does not rise to the level of dogma, does not mean that it therefore descends to the level of heresy. Robin Parry and myself have instead argued that universalism serves as deologumina, which are, quote, pious opinions that are consistent with Christian dogma. They are neither required nor forbidden, end quote. I would be surprised if universalism was officially taught in any Christian community, as I don't believe it rises to the level of dogma. 
On the other hand, we don't arrive at truth by counting noses. Surely Michael knows that regenerational baptism and paedo-baptism were the norm to the church for its 1,500 years. And yet, I'd bet good money that Michael denies at least one, perhaps both, of these doctrines. When Michael moves to attack Origen, notice how cleverly he worded his statement. He says, quote, Throughout history, this condemnation was taken as a rejection of Origen's teachings on universal salvation, end quote. Simply because something was taken to mean something does not mean that it means that something. This is true in the history of biblical interpretation and scholarship of all varieties. Again, I would pose to Michael's doctrines, uh, I would pose to Michael doctrines that rise to nearly unanimous consent in the early church based on the interpretation of texts like John 3, 6, and ask Michael if this settles the discussion of the proper interpretation of the text. Michael then diverged to a numbers game, claiming that, quote, in the ancient church, the number of non-universalist writers far outnumbers the universalists by a factor of about 10 or 12 to 1. There are several questions that need answers. Firstly, what does Michael mean by the ancient church? At what point does the ancient church cut off so that we can count the number of noses? Uh, furthermore, how does Michael know when a writer has rejected universalism? What does he look for? I ask this because others like Michael have said that certain individuals did not believe in universalism because they write of Ionian Colossum, the same phrase used in Matthew 25, 46. They then read their understanding of Matthew 25, 46 into the author and assume he is a non-universalist. But this is simply eisegesis of the most gross sort. Furthermore, I find it interesting that Michael lists Isaac the Syrian as a universalist when for centuries he was charted out as a traditionalist. I was only, it was only in the last century that the second part of his writings were discovered in Oxford in 1983 and translated and published in 1995. One can conclude from this that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Simply because an author does not write about universalism, or at the least, we do not possess all the author's writings, does not give us sufficient warrant to claim that such an individual was not a universalist. Lastly, notice that Michael only says the number of writers is disproportional, not believers. Why is this important? Well, because Augustine, Jerome, and Basil the Great all make assertions to the extent that many, if not most people in their day, did not believe in eternal conscious torment. What is Michael to do with such pronouncements, except write such believers off as the hoi polloi? Uh, and Michael ends the paragraph with a statement, quote, If the universalists are correct, then many of the greatest Christian teachers, and he goes on to list a number, were all mistaken on an essential theological question. Do we really think 21st century Christianity is so much more enlightened than preceding centuries that we alone have discovered the truth of universal salvation? Is it not more plausible to imagine we inhabit an age of spiritual and moral laxity and that universalism is growing because of a widespread desire to find a more permissive set of beliefs. There is some truth to what Michael says. Some of the greatest theologians in history were infernalists. They also believed that the earth was at the center of the universe, and that, as in the case of Thomas Aquinas, nearly the whole earth was already evangelized. They did theology to the best of their abilities with the resources they had, but they were all hindered. Augustine famously shirked off his Greek studies, Thomas Aquinas was not so well informed on the size and population of the earth, etc. I have no doubt that those theologians who believed that the earth was at the center of the universe would alter their beliefs in accordance with the evidence were they alive today. How does Michael know the same could not be said when it comes to universalism? And why does Michael keep talking like a Roman Catholic? 
Since Michael wanted to find himself on the side of Johann Eck, who argued that Luther was going contrary to the great popes, doctors, and councils of the church, Michael does well to remember that men are not infallible interpreters of sacred scripture, no matter how high their pedigree. I would further take Michael to the mat over a statement regarding the sentimentalities in the 21st century over universalism. Let's get one thing straight. Most people do not want to share heaven with Donald Trump. <laughs> Tribalism is heavy in the North American atmosphere. That universalism can come across as the most insulting outcome for many people. Moreover, I wonder if Michael believes that heretics, quote-unquote, should be burned at the stake or executed in general. As well, Calvin, oh, let me just break in there. I think there are a lot of modern Christians who would love to share heaven with, <laughs> with, with Donald Trump, but would hate to share heaven with Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Or, you know, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, are not feeling too good about Putin uh, mm. right now. And uh, maybe you know, it'd be hard to imagine sharing some kind of heaven uh, with him. But I think your point is taken is that, you know, sometimes people talk about, well, universalism, it just appeals to the modern sentiment. Well, go out and ask the, nor every, go out and ask the average person, do you think it'd be a good idea for everybody to be saved? And they say, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are horrible, horrible, awful people in this world. And if and if if these people, you know, and they can usually list them off, if these people end up in heaven, well, heaven's going to be ruined. Actually, when I told people that I believe that God was going to save everybody except the uncorrigibles, except the, the super wicked, people thought that made a lot of sense. When I said that God was going to save everybody, even the most incorrigible and the most wicked, and that any one of us could be any one of them, given the right circumstance, that's when people really uh, started having some problems with what I was saying. Yeah, uh, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, universalism can actually be an insulting outcome for many people. More to the point of Michael's statement that, well, there's so many great theologians you know, who are behind uh, this movement against universalism. Well, I'd like to point out that Michael Servetus was burned alive by, um, <laughs> by John Calvin. And, and uh, Calvin, Augustine, and Theodore Beza all argued for the execution of heretics. So I would like to ask Michael, Michael, um, do you mean to go against such great men of the past on account of your 21st century sentiments, right, when it comes to the execution of heretics? Perhaps Michael is simply suffering from a spiritual or moral lax in his life that he would not commend such an approach to dealing with heretics, right? <laughs> you, you get the logic there. Right. All right, let's go on to the eighth question. What would happen if Christian congregations or denominations embraced universalism? Some universalists say that if only Christian churches would abandon their teaching on hell, an ecclesial golden age would commence and multitudes of new numbers would enter in, no longer hindered by the offensive stumbling block of hell. History, though, suggests an opposite conclusion. Universalism is a church-destroying doctrine. In the mid-1800s, the Universalist Church, which few today remember, was briefly the fifth largest denomination in the States. What happened? Having officially declared themselves for universal salvation, a theological self-demolition promptly took place. Already in the early 1800s, universalist thinkers denied that Jesus was our sin-bearer on the cross. God punishes no one, they argued, and so Jesus wasn't punished. Soon enough, the universalists began to question and then to deny the divinity of Christ. Jesus was now simply a moral teacher. Eventually, the universalists merged with the Unitarians to become the Unitarian Universalists, still with us today, though in ever-shrinking numbers. The greatest irony was that some people in the Universalist Church stopped believing in the afterlife and ended up as secular humanists. Heaven, once it was made all-inclusive, became unreal and irrelevant, even to the Universalists themselves. Why should we imagine a 21st century Universalist Church would fare any better 
than the 19th century version. This is exactly what I'm worried about. My concern is that many of Michael's and others' objections have nothing to do with the truth of universalism, only as pastoral and practical implications. Michael provides an overly simplistic reading of the universalist church, and he seems to be utilizing what is known as the slippery slope fallacy. The slippery slope fallacy is when someone asserts that a certain proposition or action must be rejected because it would have unintended consequences, typically leading to a disastrous outcome. This is exactly what Michael is doing. Anecdotally, I can testify contrary to Michael's statements that rather than hinder individuals' beliefs, universalism has freed them from the shackles of fear. It has allowed them to use their brains to freely ask questions, etc. Does Michael want a world where people refuse to ask questions and remain in the faith due to fear, not conviction or love? It may be true that there are universalists who go off the deep end after feeling free to ask questions and explore alternative answers. But if this is what Michael means to imply, then Michael is engaging in the fallacies of reason from the parts of the whole and guilt by association. Well, what I am advocating is just that we don't make doctrines about how everything ends up to be so important that we exclude people from Christian community over them. So let's just say if somebody wants to be a Christian and believe that God will eventually save all, then we would say to them, well, okay, that's a perfectly fine way to be Christian. You have a lot of good company in the early centuries of the church. You have some good scriptural, you know, arguments for it. And yes, by all means, you know, be a part of a church community. There's a lot of church communities out there that would that would uh, probably, if you were honest about it and told what your beliefs were, would be allowed would you know allow you to worship with them. But why act as if if somebody comes to this conclusion that they're sort of ejected from Christian community altogether, or that they are some kind of poisonous pill that will destroy organized Christianity? And when I think the irony is that one of the fastest growing groups spiritually in the country right now is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who want nothing to do with religion at all. And I think part of it has to do with this idea of a God that eternally torments people and separates people, and, and that makes them turn away from Christianity. And they think that because of the way they were taught, well, if they turn away from that, then, then they have turned away from Christianity altogether. Why put it in, in, this, kind of, in this kind of way? I think what, it, what it's trying to do is just a scare tactic uh, to, try to, to try to say, oh, well, on a practical level, if you allow universalism, it, that'll be the end of all the churches. Yeah, it's... Um... The slippery slope fallacy. I mean, I don't want to keep on pointing out fallacies in Michael's reasoning, but the truth is there's a lot of fallacies in Michael's reasoning, uh, and, and he should consider those fallacies. Now, as to your point about um, how we should embrace one another uh, despite our differences, I think this is true to a degree, right, of course. Uh, we're not saying that we're denying the resurrection. We're not saying we're denying the inspiration of Scripture. We're not saying we deny the divinity of Christ. We just have a different view as regarding an eschatological point. In fact, our view seems to be a little bit more hopeful uh, than mm-hmm. Michael's view. Um, and so I think it more helpful if we can understand each other as having a conversation that is interfamilial or that's between brothers and sisters. The problem is that language such as Michael's can lead people to think that this isn't a conversation between brothers and sisters. This is a conversation between people of completely different families. And that is the concern that I really have with this. All right. Question number nine. What is the final destiny of Satan and demons? Universalists often begin from the presumption that God does not, would not, or could not create intelligent moral beings, i.e. who are capable of making moral choices, without ensuring all such beings are finally saved. 
So argues David Bentley Hart, among others. But if this is so, it means Satan and the demons must all be saved, just like all human beings. In Scripture, however, there isn't the slightest hint that Satan or the demons will ever be saved. Jesus speaks of the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's never a call or a summons or invitation for demons to repent. Throughout history, believers have prayed in hope for the salvation of mass murderers and other egregious sinners. But there are no traditional Christian prayers for the salvation of Satan. Scripture and church practice give us no reason to assume Satan or demons will ever be saved. The universalist assumption that God would never create an intelligent creature who sins and is eternally separated from him thus appears to be a false starting point. And if Satan and the demons are lost forever, then one must consider some humans might also be lost forever, as implied in the wording of the verse just cited. Then Christ will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Michael says that, quote, In Scripture, however, there isn't the slightest hint that Satan or the demons will ever be saved, end quote. Here, Michael seems to again be committing the fallacy of begging the question. He says that there is no evidence for the salvation of Satan and the demons, but one could easily argue against this claim in the following manner. All conscious moral agents will be saved. Satan and the demons are conscious moral agents. Therefore, Satan and the demons will be saved. In other words, evidence for the first proposition is evidence for the second. Michael does well to acknowledge that not all universalists believe in the final salvation of Satan and the demons, just as not all annihilationists believe in the annihilation of Satan, and not all traditionalists believe in the eternal conscious torment of the damned. Some believe that at least some of the damned will be annihilated in the traditionalist infernalist tradition, yet Michael doesn't acknowledge any of this. As we've already indicated, the word Matthew translates as eternal in Matthew 25, 41, Used to describe the fire is not meant to describe the fire duration, but its quality. It is fire of the age to come. On the other hand, even if it were to denote duration, it would not connote a perpetual quality, as the phrase eternal fire has the same meaning um, as uh, Pieros Ionia in Jude 7, which refers to the eternal fire that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah. The fire did not last forever that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah nor were the victims of the fire annihilated as they continued to exist beyond death. Michael's conclusion simply does not follow. What about his statement to the point that, quote, there's never a call or summons or invitation for demons to repent, end quote. At most, this is an argument from silence, but we must remember that the Bible is not written to angels, it is written to men. Even so, St. Jerome is but one of the fathers who, in commenting on Ephesians 3, 8-10, which teaches that, quote, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, end quote, saw this as an implication that the church aids in the reconciliation of the powers as well by means of witnessing to the powers how God has reconciled Jews and Gentiles in himself. No mention is made of McClymond at all of this passage or others which Christians have held out as speaking to the reconciliation of the fallen ones. But this shouldn't be surprising, given McClyman's careless dismissal of position he continually denigrates. Well, I've wondered, too, in reading Colossians, which says, For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
by making peace through the blood of his cross. Well, I mean, if you take a passage like that, that's very all-encompassing. And I, I will say I'm agnostic on, you know, what is the fate of the demons and the devil. And I haven't, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that because my single focus is, can you be Christian and believe that God will ultimately save all? And I want to say, yes, you can do that. And then if somebody says, well, what about the devil and the demons? I could say, well, you know, that's a, that's a different topic. People come to different, I would say that is a, you know, that's another level of discussion that people have. Some people think yes, some people think no. But you could even, but you know, you could understand how somebody might read that that Colossians passage and come to that conclusion. So I don't think that if I'm a Christian Universalist, that means I'm, I'm uh, that means I have to necessarily take that next step. It's just to to me, it's a way of kind of muddying uh, to to muddy the waters about the single the single question of can one be a Christian and believe that God will ultimately save all human beings. Uh, no, yeah, and um, I'm holding up a book for David here that I highly recommend for people in their free time. It's called A Narnian Vision of the Atonement, A Defense of the Ransom Theory, uh, by a name that's blocked out by a sticker. So I, <laughs> I wish I could read it out to you guys. But but in the book, he makes the point that um, the creeds do not pronounce on the on the nature of demons. Uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, they don't tell us. Um, and there are many other factors towards which uh, an individual is not bound to believe a certain uh, conception of the demons. I mean, is Satan, for example, is he a personification of evil or is he a conscious being? Uh, people who are demon-possessed in the Bible, is this an epileptic seizure or is this an actual demonic force? There are different views of this within the Christian tradition, and we're not bound by any creed, uh, specifically in the early church, to take this one way or another. And yet, of course, Michael doesn't acknowledge that either in, <laughs> in these 12 objections. All right. Uh, number 10. Can sinful people make atonement or satisfaction for their own sins through their own sufferings? The censor Protestant teaching based on Scripture holds that Christ's death made full payment for the guilt of sinners. Nobody can add or subtract anything from his atoning work. Scripture is clear. Sinners must simply receive in faith what Christ has done to make salvation possible. But many universalists contradict this. Those not ready at death to be with God, they say, will make satisfaction for their own sins in a fiery state of suffering and punishment, akin to Roman Catholic purgatory. The idea of paying for one's own sins through post-mortem suffering is utterly incompatible with salvation by grace alone. But what is the alternative for the universalist? The only alternative is to say everyone proceeds immediately at death into the blissful presence of God. In the 1800s, this became known as ultra-universalism, heaven for everyone as soon as death occurs. But this ultra position means it's not only saintly people who go immediately into God's presence, but even the mass murderer who's shooting his victims and is suddenly struck down by a policeman's bullet. And if everyone immediately enters heaven, then our moral and spiritual choices in this life appear to not matter at all. The universalists feuded among themselves as to whether or not there's post-mortem purification from sins, yet they never resolved the issue. For more on American Universalist's lack of cohesion in their 19th century heyday, see Chapter 6 of The Devil's Redemption. They could not agree, for it appears to be an insoluble dilemma. If Universalists affirm people can self-atone through post-mortem suffering, they're denying Christ's full atonement on the cross. But if they affirm a full atonement on the cross, they must admit everyone goes immediately to be with God at death, regardless of how they lived or the choices they made. These are the only two options for the Universalist, and neither makes much sense theologically. Mm. I would encourage people when my book comes out, I actually answer several of these objections in depth in the book. 
But for now, I'll just uh, make a few comments. Let's first examine the conclusion of Michael's claim. Quote, if universalists affirm people can self-atone through post-mortem suffering, they're denying Christ's full atonement on the cross. But if they affirm a full atonement on the cross, they must admit everyone goes immediately to be with God at death, regardless of how they lived or the choices they made. These are the only op two options for the universalists, and neither make much sense theologically. End quote. This is the very same claim that I mentioned previously, which Michael attributed to both Thomas Talbot and Sergius Bulgakov. Michael has said that on purgational universalism, some are saved by grace and some by works, some by Christ and some by hell. This is patently absurd. Neither Bulgakov nor Talbot said as much for Michael is simply confusing a sufficient condition with a necessary condition. It is a necessary condition for a person who has, say, committed the unpardonable sin to be punished, but satisfaction of his punishment does not equate to an obtainment of heaven. Even if the individual were to satisfy the punishment, he may insist on remaining separated from God. Likewise, for Michael to claim that universalism leads to people being saved by hell is like me saying that people who come to Christ on the battlefield were saved by the battlefield. No, they were saved by Christ, who used their specific circumstances to draw them to a saving relationship with himself. Likewise, those in hell are no more saved by hell than our soldiers saved by the battlefield. They are saved by Christ, who used their specific circumstances to draw them to a saving relationship with himself. Well, this is similar to an argument that was made to me one time. Uh, they said, oh, so you believe salvation is by grace alone, then you must you must mean that then repentance and faith aren't necessary. I said, well, no, uh, repentance and faith are necessary, but what happens is they are driven by grace. Oftentimes, God has to allow us to fully experience the error of our ways for us to get to that point where we wake up and then we do repent and then we eventually do see the light and begin to have faith. And so, uh, salvation by grace alone, even if it's for everybody, uh, doesn't mean that we still, that grace will not lead us through the land of repentance, uh, being salted by fire, however much that is necessary that God has to do in order for us to wake up. And as the in the parable of the prodigal son, who was considered to be dead, to wake up from that death and then to come to ourselves and begin to realize our situation and then begin to have faith that God can then, that faith or the trust, I think that's a good way to understand faith, that then God can work with and can bring us home. Yeah, I think uh, Michael fails to acknowledge what Douglas Campbell sees as the distinction between contract and covenant. An example of this would be if you were married and your spouse was to tell you, no matter what you do, I won't abandon you. I will still be your spouse, right? Uh, now, and if you, th what happened was you took this to mean, well, now I can just cheat whatever without consequence. Well, this, this would be silly. I mean, imagine instead that of your wife being fully dedicated to you, however, um, that you were over, let's say, in Germany on a business trip and you wanted to cheat on your wife, but you thought, well, if, if I take out money from the bank, she'll see the transaction. And um, if, if I leave the building, my buddies will see me and they'll know where I'm headed uh, with a business car and, and they'll catch me out. So it's just too complicated. It, it, I'm not going to do it. And you arrive home and your wife said, you know, honey, how was your trip? Uh, you, did, did, did you remain faithful over there? 
And uh, your answer was, oh, yeah, but I only remained faithful uh, because I knew that it was just too much work, right, to try to cheat on you. And I, I knew that you would just leave me anyway. Um, so that's why I stayed faithful to you. Well, you're thinking in terms of a contract now, and that's not so loving, is it? Right? The amazing thing of grace is that grace doesn't operate according to a contract. Grace is a covenant, as God showed with Abraham, when God alone walked through the pieces of the torn animals, showing that God himself will uphold the covenant, that ultimately it comes down to God's faithfulness. And um, I think that Michael would do well to remember this distinction between covenant and contract. Which would he prefer um, his wife hold to if his wife was over there in Germany, that his wife would be devoted to him out of faithfulness to him and love for him, even knowing that no matter what she did, that he would mean loyal to her, or out of fear uh, that she would be caught and then all would be lost. <laughs> yeah. Well, what what became really beautiful to me was when I began to sense that what was going on was that God in Christ had established a covenant relationship with all of humanity and that God's yes to humanity was greater than any no that God would have to make to us. But because God's yes was so tremendous, then whatever no God has to give us is something that we can bear because we know that that the yes is always is always there. It, we we can't minimize that we have a choice to the effect that we get to choose how and when we shall arrive. So, for example, if a mother was to tell a child, you're coming to the beach. Uh, many of us probably had this experience uh, where your parent says, you're going to such and such. And you say, no, I'm not. Well, in that occasion, you didn't have so much a choice in that if you had a parent like mine, you were going to the beach. <laughs> but, you, but you were able to choose how you got there. You were able to choose how long it took for you to get there. And so there was freedom within that choice. And so just as there is freedom for a child to operate within the parent's choice, so there is freedom for the human to operate within God's overall qualitative choice. Yeah, and I do think that this is, I think that McClyman does have an, an appropriate warning here in that what, what I've said is that, you know, we don't earn, we don't earn our salvation through our, through our sufferings, although God can use our sufferings as part of our salvation. Mm-hmm. And so all salvation is based upon the work of Christ on the cross when we can't add to that. But in order to come to, in order to, you know, we still have to repent. And that and that can be a painful journey that we that we're the ones that make it painful on ourselves because we we want to we want to try every wrong path as hard as we possibly can. Well, then, you know, we're going to have to be at that until the last penny is paid, until until we have finally, like the parable of the prodigal son, until we have finally just run out of our capacity to hurt ourselves mm-hmm. or to be miserable, that we will finally get to that point of awakening and start to come back home. But that doesn't, but suffering and consequences being a part of it doesn't mean that salvation isn't still by mm-hmm. Christ alone and his grace uh, that is extended to us. That. I think you're right, because simply because someone has, even if they could, satisfied punishment does not mean that they're vested now with moral virtue. So, for example, if you had a, a rapist who he served out his time in prison, well, just because he served out his time does not mean that now he's a, a morally uh, capable individual. And uh, I've seen this concern recently on a podcast with uh, Clay Jones and uh, Melissa Dougherty, where they had the concern that on universalism, uh, you're going to have uh, people who are not even remotely sorry in heaven. Well, uh, I don't know where this concern arises from because I don't know of any universalists who teach this. So, so perhaps there are some out there who do, 
but I just haven't met them. Uh, right. What 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 I and uh, you, David, and others have taught is that by no means is that going to be the case. In fact, to embrace someone who is now taken from hell and heaven will be to embrace a brother and sister in Christ, someone who is just as perfect in the sense as Jesus is perfect in the sense that they will be incapable of sinning and they will have learned to love their neighbor as themselves. So no, they're not going to be embracing somebody who's not the least bit sorry for what they have done. Yeah, they'd be incapable of sinning because in freedom, they would recognize the absolute absurdity (laughs) and destructiveness of sin and see it exactly for what it is. So they wouldn't choose it just because they have now the sight to see exactly what it is. Yeah, I mean, you you can put down in front of me, let's say every day you put down a delicious meal where it's a wonderful steak one day, the next day it's um, lobster. And, but there's always this dish that has flies swarming it and cow excrement on top of it, and um, the plate is the lid of a garbage can. Um, I don't care how many days that's available to me, I'm not going to choose that option. And like you said, it will be with the saints in heaven where sin is just so utterly revolting and disgusting, and they have learned experientially um, that it is not for their own good and benefit. All right, question 11. Is it plausible to believe that there will be a second chance for salvation after death? If there is such a second chance for salvation after death, then it's never clearly presented or described in Scripture. Instead, Jesus' teachings seem to point in the other direction. The parable of the wise and the foolish virgins emphasizes the limited time and opportunity that humans have to respond to God. And it implies the time will come when the door to the wedding feast will shut and it'll be too late to enter in. One key text appears in the Gospel of Luke. Someone said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Jesus' message is explicit. Some people, or rather many, will wish to enter God's kingdom but will not be able. How is this passage consistent with the idea common among universalists today that the Lord will give endless opportunities both prior to and after death for individuals to turn to Christ and find salvation? He explicitly says that many will seek to enter and not be able. Take heed. I'm going to give Michael the benefit of the doubt and assume that he must be at least aware of historic preterism or partial preterism, which sees the fulfillment of many of the New Testament prophetic pronouncements as fulfilled in the life of the early church, specifically the events surrounding the Roman-Jewish war. In Matthew 24-25, through Jesus tells a number of parables meant to warn the Jewish people of his coming in judgment upon apostate Judea. The apostates are excluded from the kingdom of heaven, which is even now presently among us. So you can be alive today on this earth and excluded from the kingdom. You don't have to be in hell. Yet we know from Paul in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved, which would include the apostates mentioned in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. In the case of Luke 13, I'd like to provide some background context, something McClyman seems never to do. In Luke 13, Jesus is informed by those in the crowd concerning Galileans, quote, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, end quote. Curiously, the text says that Jesus, quote, answered them, although no question is explicitly presented. Jesus says, quote, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those 18 on whom the tower in Shalom fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Now, some have assumed that Jesus here forewarns of eternal conscious torment, but exactly where is such sentiment intimated in the text? Notice the key word, likewise, which indicates that unless Jesus' Jewish listeners learn to love their neighbors and thus their enemies, the Romans, as themselves, unless they learn how to turn the other cheek, they too will be cut down with Roman swords and the catapults will render asunder their proud towers, crushing them beneath. Incidentally, this is precisely what occurred in the Jewish war. Andrew Perryman succinctly states, quote, when he, being Jesus, warns that they will perish if they do not repent, he means that they will be killed, like the Galileans butchered by Pilate, or the 18 people in Shalom who were killed when a tower collapsed upon them, end quote. Later in the same chapter, Jesus is going through towns and villages, teaching as he journeys toward Jerusalem, when he is asked, quote, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Jesus answered, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. But once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence and taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you, came, where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, which you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline a table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now, Edward Fazer, a fellow infernalist, concludes from this passage, quote, Notice that in this passage Christ is explicitly asked how many will be saved. And he gives a straightforwardly non-universalist answer. He says that many will not be able to enter heaven. Indeed, will be thrust out, end quote. Of course, Jesus says nothing of heaven, as we will soon see contextually. More importantly, Phaser seems to be unaware of the modern translations that render the question asked of Christ as, quote, Lord, are they few in number, those who are being saved? Those who are being saved. Yeah, this that's is not an important, that's in, that's an important part right there that the, if you, you have to look at the present tense of those, of that situation, of those being saved. You're absolutely right. And this is something that David points out in the book several times is the importance of looking at the tenses of these words. This is a question asked of Christ concerning the present time. Are those presently few who are being saved? Not are those finally few who will be saved? Moreover, both Phaser and McClyman seem to ignore the context altogether. This is a question asked from one Jew to another. This is not a general theological question about quotas for heaven. It is a question about Israel. Whose streets did Jesus eat and teach in? The Jews. Yet such advantages would soon not be contained to the Jewish people, but would be for all peoples. On the other hand, the workers of evil, quote-unquote, invited guests in Matthew 22, 3, who refused to attend the king's banquet in honor of his son would instead incur the king's ire. Quote, he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city, end quote, Matthew 22, 7. Such a day was drawing near when the master would, re- would return, Matthew 24, 45 through 51, 25, 14 through 30, Luke 19, 12 through 28. When the bridegroom would initiate the marriage feast, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. On such a day, some would find themselves excluded, cast out into the outer darkness, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 22, 13. When would this day come to pass? Well, in Luke 19, Jesus tells the parable of the Minas, quote, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, verse 11. 
The end will not come immediately, for nobleman must first go into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then repent, uh, return, as verse 12 says. Yet, quote, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us, verse 13. Unfortunately for them, when the king returned, he commanded, quote, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me, verse 27. Herein was the fate of those apostates who perished in the siege of Jerusalem. What they had would be taken and given to another. For as Jesus himself said, quote, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Matthew 21, 43. Sure enough, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Matthew 21, 45. Well, one of the things that helped me when I got to study the New Testament in the teachings of Jesus was how much emphasis Jesus had on the now present kingdom. <laughs> and he said, you know, this kingdom is not something you're going to get into through uh, violence, through hating your enemy, through judging others. Uh, you got to, you got to repent of all of that. You know, said, so you're just not going to be able to enter the, you know, so a lot of people will try, but they won't be able to, they're not going to be able to. And what's going to happen is they're going to experience the destruction the violent path that their leaders are taking them on, the violent path that they're taking, they're not going to be able to receive this kingdom now. So they're going to go on the violent path. I can tell you exactly where that's going to end. It's going to end in death and destruction. And uh, he also warned them to head for the hills when the Roman armies came. Well, if he was thinking about the absolute end of the space-time continuum, heading to the hills would make no difference. So... There is some historical context that's going on here. And if you take these verses and sort of rip them out of that historical context and just plug them into sort of a heaven, hell, eternal torment calculation, then you miss all of that. And one of the things that's been interesting to me is I've been watching uh, evangelicals rethinking all of this is that when they begin to realize some kind of, uh, usually it's some kind of partial preterism or a a sense that, wait a second, a lot of this judgment language seems to be fulfilled and taking place in the destruction of Jerusalem. A lot of the judgment language of Jesus seems to have to do with all of this. That leads them to start to say, wait a second, I need to rethink all of this and what was going on in all this language. Maybe some of the language I was thinking that was talking about some kind of hell of eternal torment really was located historically. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was a partial preterist before I was ever a universalist. And so it was very helpful for me when people pointed out the context of many of these sayings that people would offer. So, for example, I was often told as a kid, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone. And uh, I, I was told that repeatedly over the course of my life so that I just took it for granted. But when I actually went to the text and um, I was informed about partial preterism and um, its views concerning Gehenna, I was astonished. It seemed like Jesus actually almost never talked about hell. or <laughs> So it was quite different than what I had been taught. And so I think that there is a fascination with partial preterism, mainly due to its interpretation of revelation. I think many have been uh, quite astonished at the, the dispensationalist interpretation of uh, revelation. And so when something like partial preterism that's often tied to different views of the millennium that may be more hopeful, I think that people tend to uh, take to them better. And uh, that's something that I present in my book as well is more of an emphasis on partial preterism that we see that's um, not just prevalent among universalists, but this is something that even traditionalists and annihilationists agree on, such as Tom Wright, Chris Date, and others. So I think you're spot on the money. I think that the more people realize that many of these passages aren't referring to our distant future, but are talking about actually the early church's 
what's now the past, I think that will help to clarify some of these difficult passages. Mm -hmm. And in the in the early centuries of the uh, church, I did an interview with a, a scholar who pointed out that in the early early centuries of the church, there wasn't maybe formal theologies, but there was always prayers. There were prayers for the dead, and there was a sense of that connection that they still had with the dead. And there were some passages in the New Testament in Peter's writings that talked about that Jesus had a ministry to the dead to the realm of the dead right after his crucifixion. So in the early church, they took all of that and they had some pretty robust ideas about God, about Jesus evac ultimately evacuating hell, about robbing the strong man and having a complete victory over the power, over those, over those powers. Yeah, I, I dedicate quite a portion uh, in one of my chapters towards talking about this theme of uh, post-modern repentance and examining different passages that have been used to that extent. And uh, I think the idea of prayers for the dead actually is a very interesting topic, especially when you're examining the early church history, uh, because then the, the question naturally arises, well, why should we pray for the dead? I mean, if everything's settled at the point of death, why pray for them? I mean, if if you're damned, if you're saved, what's it going to do to help you? And so that's where the doctrine of purgatory came in for many who tried to ease the tensions between universalism and uh, traditionalism, such as Augustine attempted to do. But I think that the readers will see for themselves that more naturally uh, passages that seem to point in the direction of um, prayers for the dead or passages that seem to talk about um, Christ's descent into um, Hades or the place of the dead more naturally fits with universalism than it does traditionalism. All right, we have come to our last question, number 12. Is universalism compatible with the Christian mandate to preach the gospel, practice self-denial, and suffer for Christ and the gospel? Some universalists assert that belief in universalism would not interfere with the call or motive toward Christian evangelism, but there's no evidence this is so. A consistent universalist evangelist wouldn't call people to decide for Christ, but would tell them God had decided for them. He or she wouldn't tell people to be saved, but would say they're already saved. It's hard to imagine a theological view more likely to engender complacency or indifference. Christian missionaries like Isaac Jogues in French Canada or Jim Elliott among the Huarani people of Ecuador went into dangerous situations to preach the gospel to those who'd never heard it. And in the process, they gave up their lives as martyrs. Father Damien, for another example, went to serve and evangelize the lepers of Molokai, knowing in advance that he'd eventually contract the disease and die. Can anyone imagine a Christian universalist doing this? Is there a single case of such a universalist missionary martyr? Christian believers have un undertaken the most arduous labors in evangelism, in self-denial, and in self-giving service precisely because they are aware of the eternal realities of heaven and hell and believe that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christian martyrs bear witness to a practical fruit of holiness among those who believe in a final state of heaven and hell. So I honestly find this objection rich since McClyman is a Calvinist. <laughs> I mean, McClyman knows good and well how libertarians have constantly peppered Calvinism with objections to the point that it hampers mission uh, efforts and tends towards hyper-Calvinism, where appeals to the gospel are altogether dispensed, such as one sees with Hegelsma. I would ask Michael, if God has ordained the elect to final salvation, why evangelize? No doubt Michael could offer a number of reasons, one being that in evangelizing, I am bringing salvation to an individual who receives God's grace. 
Likewise, universalists such as myself believe that we are actively involved in the reconciliation of all things. Here's a short list of reasons why evangelism makes sense on universalism. The first reason is this. Christian universalists believe and confess that there are positive benefits in this life made possible only through a relationship with God, uh, made available by means of Christ's life and work. Second, evangelism helps hasten the salvation of all. What kind of pathetic moral credence would we be if we had a vaccine that could cure a people group in Southeast Asia, and yet we withheld it, allowing their misery to increase? Would we be loving our neighbor as ourselves? Thirdly, Christian universalists are convinced that the Christian worldview best makes sense of the human experience, so that our reasons for sharing this worldview with others are similar to Matt Dillahunty's crusade for atheism, the belief that one possesses the truth and that it is good in itself if more people believe that truth. Fourthly, evangelism is primarily about declaring good news. We share lesser good news with others all the time, so why shouldn't we share the greatest news known to man? In all frankness, if you need help to be a good person, then you're probably not a good person. I wish I could ask Dr. McClymond, if universalism is true, would you still tell others about Jesus? This is a question I ask myself. If his answer is no, then he may want to seriously examine the foundation of his relationship with the Lord. As far as Michael's historical challenge goes, I wonder if he has ever studied the Moravians, many of whom were universalists and yet would sell themselves into slavery so that they might reach slaves in the West Indies with the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a universalist who died for opposing the Nazis. Origen was a universalist who succumbed to his wounds suffered from persecution. Florence Nightingale was a universalist whose deeds are so well known under heaven I needn't recount them all. All of these and many more were convicted universalists who suffered and even lost their lives for what they believed. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if they were appalled by Michael's statement should they hear it. Christ was good enough news for them, and he should be good enough news for us. Finally, Michael's claim that hell basically should be let be as a deterrent is simply asinine. People can't be afraid of something they find incredible. That is impossible to believe. If I were to tell you, David, hey David, the next time you curse, pot-bellied Pete is going to drag you off to his rainbow sky castle in Greenland to feed you to his man-eating unicorns. Will you take such a threat seriously? No, I would not. <laughs> I'd hope not. <laughs> likewise, likewise, eternal conscious torment serves only to embarrass believers and infuriate non-believers. Charles Darwin wrote in his autobiography, quote, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. Darwin's biographer, commenting on the above remark, wrote, quote, There may be more sophisticated reasons for disbelief, but there could hardly have been a more persuasive emotional one. Another critic of traditionalism, Dr. Grady Brown, expresses disapproval in the following manner. The doctrine of endless punishment has for centuries been the crazy uncle that the church with justifiable embarrassment has kept locked in the back bedroom. Unfortunately, from time to time, he escapes his confinement, usually when there are guests in the parlor, and usually at just the time that we are telling them about a loving God who gave his son to die for their sins. It's no wonder that the guests run away, never to return, end quote. On the other hand, Douglas Moo points out that Quote, Paul never explicitly uses hell as a means of stimulating unbelievers to repent, end quote. Do we know something Paul doesn't? 
I doubt anyone could have better said it than Clark Pinnock, who, in responding to another theologian's claim that belief in the traditional hell serves as a spur to evangelism, wrote this. This just confirms my suspicion that people hold to this teaching about hell for pragmatic and not biblical reasons. Hell is the ultimate big stick to threaten people with. I would turn it around in the, the other way. It is more likely that this monstrous belief will cause many people to turn away from Christianity that will hurt and not help our evangelism. All I can say to that quote is amen and amen. Well, I didn't I have I had a little bit of an advantage in that I didn't grow up going to church. And so when people started explaining Christianity to me with the idea that if I didn't accept this, that God was going to punish me in hell forever, you know, just didn't, there's something about that that didn't seem right to me, that how could this be a being of love? And I was supposed to say I believe things that I had no historical, I had no, ac- no access to historical verification of these things, but yet I, they said, well, it doesn't matter. You just need to say you believe it or he's going to put you in hell forever. And so I was, it was this rush job. I need to go ahead and say this stuff. You know, I'm 13 years old. I need to go ahead and say this stuff or God's going to torment me forever and ever and ever and all these other people. So it just didn't make sense to me. It seemed like the only people that it made sense to were the people who had been, who'd grown up in it and who had been told that's what they had to believe. And so they had it worked out in their mind that it made sense it must make sense. And so they were confused why it didn't make sense. They were confused why it didn't make sense to me. They also could not say, well, we'd like, you know, they didn't say, hey, we want to tell you about Jesus. In him, you can have fullness of life and you can find union with God and how to live this amazing life of love in God's kingdom. And if I said, oh, that sounds interesting. What if I don't do that? And they said, well, you know, Christians have had, um, different views about that. Some have thought that if you if you walk away from God, that you end up in a situation of eternal torment. Some have thought if you walk away from God, eventually you are annihilated or you cease to exist. And others have thought, well, if you walk away from God, things just get worse and worse and worse in this life and in the next until finally you come to your senses and you, you will start to turn around and see the see the goodness of God and see Jesus and start to have faith. Um, so that's been a that's been a, a debate in Christianity. You can form your own opinion about that one, but the main thing is that I want to tell you about Jesus and fullness of life. If they had said that, uh, I would have had a lot more room to think about to think about things initially. Yeah, I remember um, being younger when people would ask you, you know, what's your testimony? Right when you're in middle school, you go around, what, what, what's your testimony? And mine was quite simple. I didn't want to go to hell. <laughs> Remember, it was it was very rational. Hell is an awful place. I don't want to go there. Jesus has a, a ticket on the um, the Jesus Express that leads to heaven, and I'm boarding the train. And what would be interesting is when you'd be people would say, "Oh, well, you you know, you should love him differently." I'm sorry, but if such a place exists, is there a more rational reason why you should be compelled to follow Jesus? And so, um. Even to this day, I think about it, and I don't judge people who don't know any better, who, who they are convinced that such a place exists, and they see this as a motivation. Um, they should be applauded for that to a certain degree, because they genuinely care about individuals such as me. They, they are genuinely convicted such a place exists, and they don't want me to go there. Um, on the other hand, imagine individuals who are convinced such a place exists, and they say nothing to me. Nothing. Never warn me about it or anything. 
I would never think that they actually loved me or they cared for my well-being. So for those individuals out there who are convinced of the um, of the traditionalist and fundamentalist view, uh, I my heart goes out to them because I know what it's like. I have been there, and I just hope that one day um, in this lifetime they would come to the same view as not uh, as myself. But if not in this lifetime, David and I know that they'll come to this view later. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 my hope. That's my under that's my understanding. Well, Andrew. Uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, work through these questions that Michael McClyman raises in the middle of finals. I uh, look forward to your uh, book coming out uh, next year and some more conversations that we'll be able to have in regard to that. And I hope it comes out sooner rather than later at the beginning part of the year. And I think, you know, you're showing an example of how enthusiastic and excited about sharing about all of this you are that right in the middle of finals week, you know, you take a couple of hours of time uh, to come on a podcast and take the time, you know, and take the time to prepare. And even while you're doing your your master's work at Princeton, you got so excited about this. You have already gotten the book together and have wanted to formally enter the conversation. And you've been willing to go online and do video debates and conversations. And you're really good natured and you know a lot of people in this conversation so I just appreciate what you're doing. I think you're a, a good-natured, well-informed young voice in this conversation. I'm excited about, about what you're doing and look forward to more conversations in the future. Well, thank you for having me, David. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced. <laughs>